Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The doctors were baffled as to what could be ailing poor Mary Halliday. Back in 1903, the 43-year-old mother suffered from some sort of attack that caused her to be bedridden. The doctor that examined Mary couldn't figure out what was causing her pain. He administered some stimulants, which eased her pain for a bit. But soon after he left, Mary's condition began to grow worse. From there, she grew steadily weaker before Mary just died. It was only after an autopsy the doctors were able to locate the root cause of what had killed Mary Halliday. Somehow, two pieces of corset steel, each measuring eight and three quarters inches long, had become lodged in the woman's heart. No one knows how they got there, or how long they had been there. But this incident does illustrate just how hazardous women's fashions for more than a century could be and why the style of what women wore was forced to evolve out of some very outdated and dangerous sensibilities. If you've ever seen a movie or TV show set in the 18th or 19th century, you can probably picture how women dressed back then. The enormous gowns with the massive crinolines, the narrow waistlines, often accompanied by elaborate headwear. But all this high fashion came at a painful and sometimes deadly cost. Corsets, for example, were complex and painful contraptions that were often drawn so tightly to create the perfect hourglass figure for a woman. They were even known to break ribs and cut off breathing, sometimes even permanently disfiguring and reshaping the woman's torso. In the case of Mary Halliday, no one could determine exactly how these rods had become driven into her heart. Some doctors actually speculated Mary swallowed them, which seems pretty unlikely. A more plausible scenario is that Mary's corset was drawn so tightly the metal framing actually broke loose and became lodged through her skin into her torso. This wasn't the only way fashion could be hazardous to a woman's health either. For a time, bright colors in women's garments were one way you could often distinguish the upper classes from the common folk. For decades, certain dye colors were expensive to produce and became something of a status symbol for women of wealth. Prior to the 1780s, green was a particularly difficult color to create, with dressmakers forced to experiment with the perfect combination of blue and yellow dyes to produce just the perfect emerald hue. But during the late 1770s, a Swedish-German chemist named Carl Wilhelmina Scheel came up with a new pigment he called Scheel's Green, which would later be renamed to Paris Green, that became all the rage. This pigment was used in all sorts of applications, not just women's clothing. As the dye color caught on with the public, it began being used in wallpaper, paintings, food wrappers, candles, toys, 
and even candies. But over time, people were exposed to this particular green dye began to suffer from a number of mysterious ailments, including unusual sores, scabs, damaged tissue, nausea, headaches, and diarrhea. The root cause for this? Paris green included a combination of potassium, copper vitriol, and white arsenic. By the 1860s, people were beginning to catch on to the fact that arsenic may not be the best thing to consume, decorate your home with, or wear on your body. Some scholars have even speculated that Napoleon may have been poisoned by the arsenic-laced wallpaper in his home. A report issued in the Ladies' Sanitary Association found that the average lady's headdress contained enough arsenic to poison 20 people. So over the years that followed, arsenic-laced products began to be phased out. That didn't mean that all garments were safe to wear from then on, though. Giant crinoline skirts would eventually be banned from many public venues because people figured out they were so huge and awkward they could get caught in machines or create other hazardous situations. Likewise, the cotton fabrics were often used as a way to replace silks and wool turned out to be highly flammable and were known to catch fire easily. In 1844, British ballerina Clara Webster actually died on stage in London's Drury Theatre after her skirt caught fire by coming too close to the stage lights. By the late 1800s, as more and more women entered the workforce, this became a major factor in transforming women's fashions into something more practical. Factory workers couldn't have women lined up wearing giant hoop skirts that could bump into each other or get caught in expensive machinery. So women's skirts became more narrow and form-fitting. Also, women's dresses gave way to something more akin to the style of a man's suit. This meant the addition of what would have been referred to as a shirtwaist back then, which is basically just another word for a blouse. By the beginning of the 20th century, thousands of clothing manufacturers, big and small, made up the garment industry in New York. The shirtwaist was a huge product for factories back then with women everywhere snatching them up off store shelves. Most of the workers in these factories were women and girls, some of them as young as 10 years old. They were often poor immigrants who had come to America looking for a better life. Many were Italians fleeing natural disasters, or Jews fleeing persecution from their homes in Russia, Poland, and the Ukraine. But instead of the American dream many of these immigrants were hoping for, they were faced with a life always teetering on the edge of starvation. They were forced to live in squalid tenements and work long hours under often brutal conditions. Factory owners and politicians turned a blind eye to the terrible working conditions these people toiled under. This all came to a head one sunny afternoon in March of 1911, when a devastating fire struck the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, causing the deaths of 146 people. It was a terrible, tragic disaster, that would go on to change the entire American workforce forever. I'm Nate Hale, currently laboring away in the depths of the podcasting minds, and this is The Conspirators. If you were to ask the average person back at the start of the 20th century if it was okay for workers to work under conditions that were so dangerous it could cost them their lives, then the obvious answer would have been no. 
But the obvious answer didn't matter much to the people in charge. Not when it threatened to upset all the unregulated capitalism and soaring profits. There was a general consensus among American politicians that nothing should be done to regulate private companies for fear of disrupting the entire financial system. This was the so-called Gilded Age, the period of tremendous economic growth that occurred in the years following the American Civil War. It was a time when the United States saw a major jump in industrialization, allowing many businessmen to become unimaginably wealthy. But this also only occurred by forcing desperate immigrant laborers to work highly dangerous jobs for long hours and little pay. Max Planck and Isaac Harris were two such men who struck it rich in the garment industry. They themselves were immigrants who came to New York and went on to build one of the largest shirtwaist factories in Manhattan, earning themselves the nickname the Shirtwaist Kings. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory they owned typically employed around 500 workers, mostly Italian and Jewish immigrant women and girls. Most of these ladies worked 14-hour days for $2 a day at most. And that's before their bosses docked their pay for expenses. Blank and Harris charged their employees for the needles, thread, and even the electricity they used. Workers were expected to sew both constantly and perfectly, using one of the cramped rows of electric sewing machines on the factory floors. These machines could produce 3,000 stitches a minute, as opposed to the old pump sewing machines that did only 34 a minute. Women were expected to work constantly, never stopping to take a drink or even use the bathroom. Sometimes the machines would jam or one of the women might make a mistake and sew right through their fingers. These mistakes were charged to the worker, who might be forced to go home and tell the family they had no money to eat for the week because of their error. And yet, even still, many of these garment factory jobs were highly desired by a lot of immigrants because at least they often got to work in modern factories with high ceilings and large windows. There were still plenty of cramped, coal-stove-heated sweatshops out there they might end up in if they weren't quite so lucky. Every morning, more than 100,000 people left their tenement apartments and filled the streets of the Lower East Side of New York, headed to their garment district jobs. The Triangle Shirtways Factory occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the 10-story Ash Building near Washington Square Park. Over the decades they'd been in business, Blank and Harris had grown their company into a million-dollar-a-year business, mass-producing one of the primary garments every modern woman was expected to wear. Isaac Harris lived in an expensive townhouse on 101st Street. He poured more than $100,000 into renovating the place, this at a time when the average worker only made between $300 to $600 per year. Likewise, Max Blank lived in a lavish home where he employed dozens of servants and even a governess to raise his children. But despite becoming insanely wealthy, Blank and Harris constantly fretted over what they saw as slipping profits. Competition was stiff in the clothing business. They weren't the only shirtwaist manufacturer in town. In Manhattan alone, there were around 500 other garment manufacturers chipping away at their business. On top of that, fashion editors who dictated what the fashion trends were going to be for each year constantly bemoaned the shirtwaist as what they saw as a stale fashion trend. 
Couple that with rising material and shipping costs, and Blank and Harris were always grumbling about the downward slope of their sales charts. They knew all it would take is one bad season, and they'd be flat broke. But rising costs and changing fashion trends weren't the only threats Blank and Harris faced in their business. Across the city, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, or ILGWU, began organizing and threatening to walk off the job, demanding higher pay, safer shops, and shorter hours. Blank and Harris saw this as a personal attack. They had invested a lot of money into their newfangled electric sewing machines and state-of-the-art factories. They refused to give an inch to the workers for believing they should spend more of their hard-earned money to make conditions better. Even after the last machines were shut down for the night, the Triangle Factory workers still had to jump through one more hoop before they were allowed to leave. No one was allowed to exit the building before allowing their bags and their persons to be searched by the factory foreman as they left through the Green Street exit. Blank and Harris were always calculating how much money they'd lose if one of the workers managed to sneak out with some scraps of fabric. So they ordered that there be only one way out of the building, on Green Street. The other exit to Washington Place was kept locked at all times. Some harsh working conditions were actually common throughout not only the garment industry, but industry as a whole. There were no minimum wage laws back then. No child labor laws or laws regulating the maximum number of hours a person could be forced to work. There was practically no government intervention at all. On the morning of October 4th, 1909, Harris and Blank faced their darkest fear when they arrived at the factory only to find their workers had gone on strike. This was referred to in the newspapers as the Uprising of the 20,000. It was the first mass protest of its kind among the working women of America. And this was at a time when they still didn't even have the right to vote. This progressive movement had been picking up steam for decades. For a long time, all the crushing poverty and inhumane working conditions had gone unnoticed by the wealthy elite. There was a general consensus among the upper crust that they had earned their wealth through their own hard work and individualism. But when the wave of strikes began to occur throughout the city, finally the wealthy business owners were forced to take notice. But Max Blank and Isaac Harris weren't going to sit idly by and let these disgruntled women tell them how to run their business. They hired scab workers and bought paid muscle to go out and beat the women into submission. They also appealed to Tammany Hall, the corrupt political powerhouse that ran the city. The men who ran Tammany Hall sent out paid strike breakers and city police to crack some skulls and arrest thousands of female protesters. At a union meeting, a 22-year-old garment worker named Clara Lemlich stepped up to the podium and described how she'd been beaten by some paid thugs, and she had the six broken ribs to prove it. By the time Clara was done speaking, the entire room was cheering on the idea of a strike. This labor movement would go on to gain some powerful and unexpected allies. Several wealthy society women, including Alva Vanderbilt Belmont and Anna Morgan, daughter of J.P. Morgan, the most powerful financier in the history of the world, took up the cause. The newspapers couldn't get enough of the story, and many of their articles focused on these wealthy champions for the cause. This so-called mink brigade would go on to walk the picket lines alongside the young immigrant workers. 
Suddenly, it became a lot more difficult for the strike-breaking thugs and police to do what they were paid to do. Not if it meant accidentally beating up or arresting a member of the Upper Crust. Early on, several of the smaller shirtwaist factories gave in to workers' demands and became union-only shops. Eventually, at Blank and Harris's recommendation, the Manufacturers Association agreed to higher wages and shorter working hours for the women. But only if the strikers dropped their demands to create union-only shops. The strike leaders refused, which didn't sit well with Morgan and some of the other wealthy elites who had taken up the cause. Morgan and the others abruptly stepped down from the strike committee because the demand for labor unions was a step too far for them. But despite losing some of their most powerful allies, the labor unions persisted. And by mid-February, thousands of workers had forced their employees to become union-only shops. But not the Triangle Factory workers. Although Blank and Harris did agree to some concessions regarding pay and working hours, the Triangle Factory conditions remained largely unchanged as women return to the sewing machines with very little to show for it. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. March 25, 1911 was meant to be a relatively short eight-hour workday for the garment workers of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. This was a Saturday, and it came after the workers had already put in a 60-hour work week. Outside the Ash Building, many people were out enjoying the afternoon, walking the streets, or strolling through nearby Washington Square Park. No one knows exactly who started the fire but it's believed to have been begun by someone tossing aside an errant cigarette that caught the highly flammable stacks of fabric and paper patterns ablaze. Smoking was officially prohibited on the factory floor, but sometimes the cutters and supervisors snuck a smoke in here and there, and no one said anything to them. The blaze began at 4.40 in the afternoon. The workers on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors had no idea what was coming or what to do in the event of a fire. They had never been put through a fire drill before. New York City Fire Chief Edward Croker had been asking for years that workplaces across the city take fire safety seriously. There had even been another major fire in a factory in Newark several months earlier, but still Croker's pleas were ignored. No business owners wanted to take the time to organize a fire drill because that meant time the workers weren't doing their jobs. The ash building which housed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a relatively new structure, which you would think would have meant it would have been safer in preventing a fire, but it wasn't. Stairwells were too narrow to accommodate many people, 
and no sprinkler system was ever installed because the business owner deemed it to be an unnecessary expense. On top of that, the exit doorways opened inward, despite fire officials telling people for years they should open the other way for fire safety. If, for example, a huge crush of people were to all pile into these doors at once, they wouldn't be able to be opened at all. That's precisely the nightmare scenario that played out on the day the fire began in the Triangle Factory. On that afternoon, both of the owners were present in the building. Max Blank's governess had brought his two children, four-year-old Mimi and 12-year-old Henrietta, to his 10th floor office, with plans for them all to go shopping that day. But then Blank received a frantic phone call from the switchboard operator shouting that there was a fire on the 8th floor. Soon, smoke began rising up to the 10th floor. Mass chaos broke out from there. Somehow, four-year-old Mimi got separated from her father in the crowd of panicking employees. Blank found the little girl getting shoved into an elevator. Only he snatched her out of there and made his way with Harris and a number of other employees to the roof. A New York University law professor in the building next door noticed what was going on and he enlisted the aid of some of his students to lower a ladder from a window down to the roof below. The triangle owners and around 60 to 80 others managed to escape from the roof. The workers on the lower floors weren't nearly so lucky. Although the switchboard operator did manage to warn workers on the 10th floor within minutes of the fire breaking out. In her panic, the operator neglected to warn the workers on the 9th floor. There were more than 300 garment workers on the 9th floor that day and they remained oblivious to the blaze that grew rapidly out of control beneath their feet for several critical minutes. When workers finally began to realize the building was on fire, everyone panicked. The Green Street stairway almost immediately became clogged with people. Several others rushed toward the tiny two-passenger elevators that led to the Washington Place exit. Still others climbed out the window onto the fire escape that led to the back alley. But within minutes, the rickety fire escape couldn't handle the weight of all the people clambering onto it. Some reports claim the fire escape was damaged even before the fire. In any case, the metal bent from the weight of the people and the heat of the fire. The metal structure buckled. The fire escape broke away from the building and collapsed, sending the people who were standing on it hurtling more than 100 feet to the ground below. The factory floor had been designed to pack as many people in together as possible. During a typical day, women sat practically shoulder to shoulder at the rows of sewing machines. Throughout the rest of the floor, the narrow aisles were clogged with stacks of baskets and loose fabric. When the hundreds of workers turned into a panic mob, they fought against each other as the air filled with smoke. Everyone began pushing and shoving at each other for dear life. Some women were trampled as people scrambled for any exit they could find. By now, several of the passers-by on the streets below had begun to notice the smoke billowing out of the upper windows of the ash building. People on the street could see and hear women and young girls pounding at the windows and screaming for help. The fire spread quickly through the stacks of fabric, wooden tables, and even the fabric dust that hung in the air. The only concession Blank and Eris had ever made to fire safety were some red pails of water they kept in the corners, but these never got used. Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortallaro were the two elevator operators in the building that afternoon, and they became two of the unsung heroes of the tragedy. The two men had been getting ready to call it quits for the afternoon when the bell that called for the elevator began ringing incessantly. 
As they brought the elevator up to the factory floor, they were met by a mad crush of people begging to let them in. The elevator was only meant to hold about a dozen people, but Zito and Mortalero squeezed as many bodies in as they could, and they kept returning on as many trips they could make after that. Soon, the men were taking the elevator straight up into the flames to save the workers. It's believed the two elevator operators may have saved as many as 100 people that day. But the workers who crowded around the elevator shaft waiting for it to return became desperate enough to either begin jumping into or shoving others down into the shaft. Some of them hoped they could ride the top of the elevator down. But most of the people died on impact as they plummeted down the smoke-filled shaft. Soon, the weight of all the bodies on top of the elevator grew too heavy, and it forced the elevator to drop down into the basement. The Washington Place stairway was locked, leaving only the Green Street exit, which had become clogged with people trying to navigate the narrow staircase and crushed up against the inward-facing doors. This left only one other possible exit from the building that anyone could see. By then... Many desperate people began climbing out onto the window ledges. Down below, the fire trucks had arrived within a few minutes of the alarms going off. But when they went to raise their ladders, another terrible realization occurred. The New York City Fire Department hadn't been able to keep up with the city's architectural innovations. Namely, buildings had been growing taller and taller. The fire department's ladders could only reach the sixth floor. This was 30 feet shy of the trapped workers in the Triangle Factory. That was when the bodies began to fall. People in the street began screaming, Don't jump! Don't jump! But many of the desperate workers jumped anyway. The first person to jump was a young man. Another man was seen kissing a young woman at the window before the two of them both leaped to their deaths together. The firemen on the ground pulled out nets, but they were never designed to catch a body falling from such a tremendous height. As the first bodies plummeted to the earth, the nets were torn away from the firemen's hands, and the bodies smashed into the pavement with a sickening thud. A newspaper reporter on the scene later described in grisly detail the sound of the bodies thudding into the concrete over and over again. He said it was a sound that would haunt him forever. Some of the bodies that came hurtling out of the Triangle Factory windows were completely engulfed in flame. Bodies piled up three and four feet high on the pavement below. The firefighters could do nothing more than turn their hoses on them to put out the smoldering remains. It's the human stories the people were trapped in the fire that really cut close to home. Rose and Katie Weiner were sisters who had sailed from Russia in steerage looking for a better life in America. Both of them worked in the Triangle Factory together. Rose had a fiancé and had dreams of earning enough money to buy a farm and move out of the big city. But only Katie emerged from the building alive that day. Joseph Wilson was a young man who had actually managed to escape the building. But he realized after he got out in the street that he'd forgotten his grandfather's gold pocket watch back upstairs. It was his family's most prized possession. So Wilson rushed back inside the burning building to get it. He never came back out alive again. Later on, when his fiancée made her way to the makeshift morgue the city set up down by the pier and identified Joseph's body, she asked if there had been a gold watch found among his possessions. One of the authorities gave it to her, 
and when she opened it, her picture was inside. The fire department had the blaze under control within about 30 minutes. Afterwards, police and firemen lowered the charred remains of the dead that were still inside the factory down to the ground below by block and tackle. Many of the police who arrived on the scene that day were the same officers who weeks before had been beating some of these same women bloody during all the mass protests. But even the toughest New York City policemen crumbled at the sight of all this death and tragedy. Officers were changed out nearly every hour as bodies were carted away in makeshift coffins. By just after midnight, 145 dead were counted. One 16-year-old girl who had jumped from the ninth floor lived for a few days. But she too died in the hospital, bringing the final tally of the dead to 146. In total, 53 people either jumped or fell from the windows, 19 died in the elevator shaft, and at least 50 people burned to death on the factory floor. Nearly all the people who died that day were women, and nearly half of those were teenagers. They laid the bodies out side by side in a temporary morgue along the East River. Hundreds of people turned out to identify the dead, although thousands more were just ghoulish curiosity seekers, hoping to get a peek at a dead body. Many of the remains were so badly burned it made identification difficult. One young girl showed up and was only able to identify her own mother because of the way she had braided her mother's hair that morning before she went to work. One woman was only able to identify her teenage daughter by the way her stockings had been stitched. A man named Salvatore Maltese lost every female member of his family that day. His wife, Catherine, his 20-year-old daughter, Lucia, and his 14-year-old daughter, Rosaria. Rosaria was also the youngest victim of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Stories about the dead dominated the newspapers for weeks after. By early April, all but seven of the dead had been identified. The Union wanted to hold a public funeral for these unidentified victims. But city leaders refused, because they didn't want them to become martyrs to the Union's cause. The city buried them in an unmarked plot in Brooklyn. And in retaliation, the Union led over 100,000 marchers to the streets in their own symbolic funeral. One newspaper article reported that the mourners marched in eerie silence through the rain-drenched streets that day. That is, until someone began to give out a piercing wail that began to echo and carry throughout the crowd. People who lived in the neighborhood were outraged in a way the city had never seen before. Fingers were being pointed in every direction as to who was to blame. The people demanded justice. Once word got out in the press that Harrison Blank had locked the Washington Place exit because they were afraid of employee theft, they were charged with manslaughter. The two men hired a high-priced Tammany Hall lawyer named Max Stoyer to represent them. The all-male jury only deliberated for two hours before acquitting the men. This set off another public outcry that justice had not been done. A subsequent civil suit filed against the men in 1913 resulted in the plaintiffs being awarded compensation in the amount of $75 per deceased victim. But Blank and Harris fared far better financially after the fire. The insurance company paid the men about $60,000 more than their reported losses, which breaks down to about $400 per casualty. After that, the two men went right back into business. 
1913, Max Blank was once again arrested for locking the door of his factory during working hours. For that, he was fined $20, the maximum fine the law would allow. But the public outcry surrounding the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire and the subsequent outrage at the two men, the public viewed as responsible getting away scot-free, fueled the labor movement in New York City, as it had never had before. A committee on public safety was formed that included Al Smith of Tammany Hall, along with a number of other prominent labor activists. These included Frances Perkins, who would later serve as the first female United States Secretary of Labor, union activist Rose Schneiderman, and Clara Lemlich, the young woman who had once had six of her ribs broken by strike-breaking thugs. The committee took the entire labor market to task. They focused not only on fire safety, but also made numerous sweeping recommendations about child labor, lowering working hours, establishing a minimum wage, as well as aid for workers too old or too sick to work anymore. Nearly all their recommendations were enacted into law in New York and were instrumental in paving the way toward Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. Today, a memorial service is held every year at the location of the Ash Building, which is now known as the Brown Building. The building has been designated as both a National Historic Landmark and a New York City Landmark. Historian Michael Hirsch was also able to identify the last remaining unidentified victims of the fire. Their remains now lie beneath a monument to the tragedy in the Cemetery of the Evergreens in Brooklyn. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to John for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. I'm also currently working on expanding both my Patreon offerings, as well as growing and making this show even better. So stay tuned. Another way you can help support the show is to check out our merch store, where you can purchase all sorts of conspirators t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both my Patreon and store in the show notes. Yet another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. You can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.